0: Good morning. It's good to be with you guys today. Uh, Welcome to our family gathering again. Um, Have a great time, kids. Uh, If you were here last week, we began a new series uh, that's going to take us uh, actually from now through the month of August. We're going to be settling here for a little while. Uh and we're in the book of Ephesians this morning and we will be for the next several months. Uh, that little letter, it's it's somewhat hard to find if you're unfamiliar with the, the Bible, but it's on page 814. If you're going to follow along in the in the books that we have here. Um, you could always get to it through the Bible app, which I think we're starting to use more frequently now. Um, and the the verses are contained in there, I guess. Uh, in an event that we've got, but, um, that's where we're gonna be this morning if you wanna turn there. Uh, but to, let me orient us again to, to what we've been up to and what we're doing. Um, we're, we're calling the series This Beautiful Mess. And there's a reason for that. Um, but well, we're in the book of Ephesians, and, and Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul, and it's a, it's a letter to several, well, to, to the church in Ephesus, which is a city in the ancient world. And he's reminding them of who they are and what they are to do now in this new life out of their new identity. And it's a, it's a call to participate in a new kind of community. And we thought, man, we're, so we're seven years in as a church. It's great for us to, to look back at what it is, does it mean to be the church? Um, because we, we talk a lot about that as the church. Um, and it's important for us to have a correct orientation and, and here's what we said last week in terms of what we'll find out, is that the church is to be a new human community, as I said, that's marked by two different things. It's marked by kind of coming out of the mess of the world and, and experiencing the mess of our lives, that we are by nature messy people. We are not perfect by any means. We are, we are becoming perfect through the grace of God. And yet in the midst of our mess, we're becoming something beautiful. That the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is transforming us into something beautiful that's a display to the world in the midst of their mess. Um, and those are the two things that we're going to see as we go throughout this whole series is beauty and mess and how God is bringing one from the other. Um, so last week we started by talking about God's beautiful blessing, the fact that we are blessed uh, in spite of the fact that we're undeserving, and that specifically we talked about three primary ways that we're in, that God is bringing a beautiful blessing, and that we are united to Christ, that we are adopted in Him, and that we're redeemed through Him. And I gave you a bit of a challenge. How many of you recall me giving you a challenge last week? Nobody wants to admit to it, but. <laughs> um, And and so the challenge was this. Basically, those things are already deposited into your account. And yet the rest of our life is a struggle to increase in our belief of those three things. And what I challenged you with was, make every effort this week to grow in your belief. And then see what God does from that. So I wanted to ask you and just follow up on that and say, how did that go? What did you discover? What did He remind you of? What was different about your week, maybe, than the week before? Because you realized, wow, I am adopted, or I am redeemed, or I'm united with Christ. I'm actually in Him, and He's in me. Is there anything that uh, grew in your belief last week? You don't have to be shy. We're family here. Yeah? Yeah? Okay, so as a dad, you find a, maybe a new openness to listen to what's happening with your daughter and respond with hopefully some wisdom maybe that God's given you and some grace that he's poured out into your heart and life. Yeah, great, good news. Okay, so the more you're, you're digging in, the more, doubt, the more questions are being raised in your mind. Maybe areas that were under a carpet or something, you start to peel back the layer and you go, oh, what do I, what is really under that? Is that kind of the experience? <laughs> okay. Yeah, so things can s- seem to contradict on the surface. Maybe, maybe we should spend some time digging into that as a family. It would be good for us to do. I think, I mean, the good news is that your skeptics are in good company when it comes to the gospel, because Jesus actually appeared to skeptics. Um, You know, I mean, even his disciples, when they go to Galilee to meet Jesus, because they were told to go there by the angel and they're standing around waiting, you know, it says that even when Jesus showed up to them and said, here I am, I'm alive, they worshiped, but some of them doubted. And then Jesus' very next words were, you know, go and make disciples. Like So there's a plan for you doubters. Like there's a place in his family for questioning. And even those that look Jesus eye to eye experienced doubts and questions. So it's good to know that God doesn't discard us just because we ask questions. He's, He's actually big enough to handle those things. Cool. Anything else? Mm -hmm. That could be a perception from somebody. Sure, yeah. And, and I I mean, this is the stance of our our church. It was the thesis of last week is that essentially we're all unbelievers in some area of life. It's not like, oh, just because we go to church, which isn't even a true statement, because if we're in Christ, we are the church. But we, we, all of us still not only experience intellectual doubts, but we, we don't even believe the things that we are secure in our knowledge that are true. So, I mean, even like last week, we talked about adoption and the fact that we are completely secure in him, we're completely adopted, there's nothing that can take us out of his hands. And yet, how, how many of us operate out of that knowledge? How often is that belief concrete in actually every action that we do? It's never, it isn't. So we're all growing as, as uh, from unbelief to belief in absolutely every area of life which, if you think about it, gives you a great deal of common ground with people that even reject God. The people that you work with, the people in your neighborhood, you should have a great amount of compassion because you realize that at your core, you're really just like them. And if it weren't for God intervening in your heart and your life, you would be them. And so, um, you know, for me, it puts me in a posture of humility where I realize, okay, I need God to reveal what's true, but I also need him to help me grow in my belief. Lord, I believe Help me in my unbelief. And and I do hope that as we go through this series, that you will experience that growth um, in your own heart, in your own life, as we do it. Not just in what God has done for you, that's what we talked about last week. Um, but this week, we're, we're actually going to talk about what God is and will be doing for you. Because we're going to be talking about his plan. Um, and the fact that God does have a beautiful plan and is exercising that plan for the sake of his church. And so we're going to be in verses 9 to 14 uh, today. And uh, this is what it says. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. There's a lot going on in five verses. (laughs) Um, Certainly a lot more than we can get to today. It's really too rich. And maybe you can dig into some of the things that we don't get to in your groups this week. Um, But I want to focus our attention on really what Paul's main driving idea is here, which is that God is unfolding a plan. He's unfolding a plan for the world. He's unfolding a plan for the church. And that plan includes every single one of us and every single thing that we experience. So we're just going to talk about two things. One, what is that plan? And two, what does that plan bring to those who believe it? What is the plan and what does it bring to those who believe it? So let's talk about the plan. Uh, The plan is, he he lays it out in verses 9 and 11, when he says that he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to, to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. If you remember last week we talked about the fact that God has already blessed us in Christ. So we've mentioned a few of those things already. That He's He's adopted us and He's redeemed us. And here we actually find one more thing that He's already given to us, and it's big. So we can't miss it. Paul is saying we He has already what? Made known the mystery of His will. If you're in Christ, He has already made known to you the mystery of His will. In other words, He's already revealed His plan to us. That's a remarkable statement. Is it? He, God's revealed what He wants to do in the world. And here's why it's so remarkable, because imagine if it's true, if that statement really is true that God has revealed to us, he's, he's pulled back the curtain on the mystery of what he's up to in the world, then we are no longer left to wonder. The, the questions have been answered, the major problems of our life have already been settled if this statement is true. I mean, I get a chance to talk to so many people who, I think, they live their life with incredible fear over the choices that they might make. They live with incredible regret over the choices that they have made. They, they live with a sense that they need to be in control of their present situation and the future that they're going to move into, or they live with despair that things will never, ever, ever improve in their life. In all of those things, what Paul is saying is that it comes down to this. If we're struggling in any of those things, it's because we either don't know or don't yet believe that, he, that one, God has a plan, and two, that it's knowable. That's why it's so remarkable. Because everything that we experience in life, all these negative things that wrap us up and tie us down and keep us from being free, Paul's saying all of that could be wiped away in a moment. In fact, what he's saying is it's God's good pleasure to make it known to us. He actually delights to include his kids in his plans. Later today, as an Easter present, we got our kids tickets to a show in Philadelphia, and we're going with them this afternoon to do it. And we we bought them months ago, like back in January, February, something like that. But we bought it as an Easter present. Do you know how difficult it was for me as a dad not to tell my kids that we're going to take them to this amazing show and that they're going to have a ball? It was really difficult. I couldn't wait for Easter Sunday to come because finally we could sit them down and go, guess what we're going to do in four weeks. <laughs> um, and you know, as you can imagine, they, uh, they, uh, they weren't as excited as I had hoped that they would be, but that excitement has grown and grown and grown and they're, they're looking forward to it today. But God, He, He, He's a good dad. He wants to make what he's already accomplished and what he has planned in terms of our ultimate future, he wants to make that known in such a way that it changes the way that you live, that you would no longer live with despair, but you would live with excitement of what he's up to. And he goes on to say that not only does he want you to know, but he's working everything out. He's fitting all the pieces together into that plan. The, the word plan or the word purpose in the, these verses is the Greek word boule, which is where we get the word blueprint from. And Paul is saying that everything that happens is contained in the blueprint of God's history. Now let me just ask this. Like, okay, if, if he does have a plan and he wants to share it with us, And everything fits into that plan. Why? Why in the world do we struggle so badly to believe it when we look at our lives and the world around us? Why do you think? Here's my theory. It's because we interpret God's plan through the lens of our circumstances rather than interpreting our circumstances through the lens of God's plan. Isn't that true for you? It's certainly true for me. I I use all the circumstances that are going on in my life, whether they're good or bad, and I look through those circumstances at what God says in His Word, and I have more faith in what my eyes can see than what my heart can tell me through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because folks, if it were reversed, would you not move through your present circumstances with a different perspective than you do right now? I certainly would. And Paul is saying that change is on offer to you. But you have to be able to see your circumstances in light of the plan rather than the other way around. So this is what begs the question. What is the plan Where is it heading? What is the blueprint? What's the goal? Where, what is it that should refocus the way that I live out the rest of my life? Well, we talked about verses 9 and 11 show us, you know, that, that he does have a plan. Guess what happens in verse 10 right in the middle? He shares the plan. Verse 10 says to be put into effect when times reach their fulfillment. The fulfillment just means the goal. When God accomplishes his goal, this is what's going to happen. He's going to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. He's going to bring unity to everything in heaven and on earth, and he's going to do it all underneath the authority of Jesus. See, to bring everything together in unity that's now in conflict, that's now in in, at war with each other, that's now in disrepair. is to restore everything that's falling apart. If you know anything about the story of God, you realize that the current state of things is not the state that, in which God intended the world to operate. That, that we were intended to be in perfect relationship with one another, and the world, and ourselves, and our Creator. And it, But it all began with a relationship with Him. But the the current state of things looks quite a bit different, doesn't it? Everything is falling apart. Everything seems to be moving towards decay. I mean, like if you cook a chicken and you put it on your dining room table, it's going to smell great. What happens if you leave it there for two months? (laughs) Yeah, it's going to (laughs) smell... It's moving towards decay. And, and what the Bible is saying is that this is happening with everything. It's happening with the world. It's happening with our bodies. It, I mean, scientists will tell you this is what's happening with the universe. Why? It's because our relationship with God fell apart, which started a chain reaction where because we were built for relationship with Him, when that relationship fell apart, our relationship to everything else falls apart and is subject to decay and death as well. It's broken. It's a mess. And it's a sign of our brokenness with God. I mean, think about the I mean, every relationship that you have, even the best ones that you have, isn't it not a struggle to maintain those relationships? Don't they take incredible work and you always feel like you're putting out fires in order to be in relationship with people around you? And then certain people that you were close with at one point in time, you think, man, I, I don't know what happened. Like we were close and then distance or conflict or whatever the case may be, came in and now suddenly that relationship, which meant so much to me before, is now unraveled. Why does that happen? And not just our relationships with one another; relationships between races unraveled, and is falling apart, full of suspicion and misunderstanding and hostility. Our relationship with other countries and other classes of people, not to mention all the suffering and disease and aging and dying that we all experience, everything's falling apart. I know I'm painting a beautiful picture of the world, am I not? It's a beautiful, yeah. What is God going to do about it? Does He have a plan for it? The answer is yes. And here's what He's going to do. He's going to bring all of those things under Jesus. He's going to take all of that stuff and He's going to bring it under Him. Now that word to bring it under, it means to like sum up. It's to make sense out of everything. It's kind of like, it's like, One of those magic eye posters. How many of you had one of those growing up? It's um, it's been a little while now uh, since they were popular. My sister had one of those on her wall, and she was really good at them. Guess who wasn't? Her big brother. (laughs) And I would come out of my room every day, and she would come out of hers, and she'd smile at me and go, "You still haven't figured it out yet. You can't see it, can you?" (laughs) I'd be like, "No," and then I start to like make up stuff. It's a giraffe. It's a dolphin. You know? She's like, "No." And I tried to get my parents involved and have them to figure it out. And, and she just kept that information from me. It didn't make any sense, but to her, it made perfect sense. And here, here's what Paul is saying Jesus is the mystery behind the universe, he, he, is the, he is the magic behind absolutely everything. And without being able to see Him, bringing everything together in a way that makes sense underneath his authority you will look at the universe as i looked at my sister's magic eye poster and go what's up with this it doesn't make any sense it's in complete disarray i don't get anything out of this but to her it made all the sense in the world see it's it's only it only makes sense through him it only We only find our fulfillment in him. And God is bringing the world to the point where Jesus will rule again. Where it won't just be a few people that can look at the poster and make sense out of it. Absolutely everyone will be able to do it. The mystery will be revealed. See, But it's only when Jesus Christ is revealed as the true king that everything is going to make sense and everything that's falling apart currently will be put back together again. When everything that is wrong will be healed, everything that's a mess will become beautiful. I mean, this idea shouldn't be new. Even if you're foreign to Christianity, this idea shouldn't be new because, I mean, think about every good story. Every good book, every good movie that you've ever watched or read, what is the plot line? Things are bad. Someone who, in a time of need, steps into a position of authority and through their influence, they make everything right again. It doesn't matter if it's a king or a president or or whatever the case might be. Someone steps into that authority and turns chaos into order. And my favorite series of books, Lord of the Rings. I mean, that's exactly what it's about. Now, where do we get this idea from? Because it seems like in real life, whenever you put a human in charge, things go from bad to worse. Right? I mean, you look throughout history and you think, okay, things are going to get better when we put the right person in the right position. That person gets in the right position and, and inevitably, either because of their mismanagement or their sin or circumstances that are outside of their control, things continue to fall apart. So where did this concept come from? Why do we all long for a story that gets resolved in this kind of way? It's because there at one time, it wasn't a human king that was on the throne, but it was a, a heavenly king. It was a divine king. It was the original king who exercised his authority with perfect power and justice and compassion and glory. And we all want that king back. Absolutely every single one of us were made for that king. And our lives and this world will only make sense and be summed up when he again is on the throne. And the And the plan that God's talking about in Scripture finds its end when Philippians 2, verse 10 and 11 happen. That at the name of Jesus, our true and real king, every knee should bow in in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Bible says that day is on its way. And I hope you see this is the only worldview that makes sense of both the beauty and the mess of our world. Both the beauty and the mess of our lives because it tells us that the beauty that we see around us in, in the world, the beauty in our relationships, the beauty that, that we all know is there and we, we experience it through creation, we experience it in loving relationships, we experience it when we find our purpose in life, it's all there and guess what, it's all a trace of the past. It's it's all the the, the trace of the garden still that's still embedded into the world, and it's also a sign of the future kingdom that's coming into the world. That's why it's still there. But it also means that the mess around us isn't just because of random processes. It's because the human race has been at war with its creator, and the fallout of that war is a battle zone. And the destruction is everywhere. And yet God is, by his grace, doing something about it. At this moment, he, in unseen ways, is bringing it all together underneath Jesus' authority. And it won't make sense to us until the curtain's pulled back and the king appears. Do you see how that would change your perspective? If you interpreted your present circumstances in light of that glorious goal that God is exercising rather than the other way around. God wants to share this with us. He wants us to to operate out of an understanding that these things are, are true. He doesn't want us to be in the dark. And there's a reason that He doesn't want us to be in the dark. And the answer is... Why why doesn't he want us to be in the dark? Because he wants to change the way that you live. All throughout this section, remember, at every point, Paul says that we are to be to the praise of his glorious grace. You remember what that means from last week—that we're worship leaders, that we live our lives having been blessed by God, so that everything that we do in life is is worship. It it praises God. We can't help but sing when we think about what God has done for us. Now, how how effective of a worship leader are when you are filled with despair and regret and fear? You can't sing very loud when your voice is caught up with fear. And Paul is saying, as God is changing us into worship leaders through revealing his plan to us. Now here, so what does it bring? If we believe this, that there is a plan and that it's heading towards a good ending, what does this do to us? And, and I, I think Paul highlights three things. He says that with this plan comes hope, with this plan comes security, and with this plan comes freedom. Hope, security, and freedom. So hope. Ephesians um, 1, verses 11 and 12. That God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will in order that we who are the first to put our hope in Christ may be to the praise of His glory. One of the reasons that God is revealing this to us is so that we would live our lives saturated with hope. Now... In the Bible, the word hope means something way stronger than what we think it means. Because what what do we often think hope means? Like, hope so, you know? Like, I hope, you know, things will get better. I hope so. It's sort of like wishful thinking, you know? Glass half full, positivity, and that's everywhere in our culture, is it not? Have hope. Have a little hope. The glass isn't so empty. You know, things will get better. Things will improve. I hope so. That's not what the Bible means. When the Bible talks about hope, it means a life-shaping certainty about your future. A life-shaping certainty about what the future looks like that informs the present Uh, You may not realize this about yourself, but you are incredibly shaped by hope. And whether or not you have hope. Um, Which means that how you live in the present is shaped by what you believe about the future. Greatest illustration of this, okay? Two guys are contracted to do the same job. It's a terrible task. And they're both brought into the same room to do that same terrible task. Under the same terrible conditions. And people are yelling and screaming at them to do more and get it done and, and and all the things that they have to do and how they're not shaping up and they're not doing it right. Now, just before they enter through the door of that room, one of them is told, For all of this work today, you're gonna receive fifty dollars. He goes into the room, the next one comes in, and someone whispers in his ear. For all this work, at the end of the day, you will receive $1 million. How do they go about that task differently? The one who's going to receive 50 bucks at the end goes, I don't need this. (laughs) What what am I working so hard for? Why are they yelling at me? I I, I deserve so much more than this. Now how about the one that's going to get a $1 million at the end? Bring it on. (laughs) I don't care how much you yell at me. Do you know what's waiting for me on the other side of the door when I leave this room? I don't care how hot it is. I don't care what, what the circumstances are. Because I have something that's worth everything that you can throw at me and more waiting for me on the other side. See, why do they have such different experiences? It's because their different futures means they process their present differently than each other and it's the same with us as we already said listen if if you're outside of god's plan if you're outside of jesus if even if you have a general kind of religious philosophy on life and you, and you think that yeah there's probably is a god and He probably loves us and all this thing. The best hope that you have is hope so. I hope I'm a good person. I hope that God will love me. I hope things will turn out in the end. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. That's the best you got. But if you're in Christ if you have a real, secure future, if God does have a beautiful plan, that's going to change the way that you live. See, what your hope is set on will change the, the, the way that you experience the present. Because if your hope is set on the circumstances of your life, if it's circ- set on, the, on your self-effort or on your family or whatever temporal thing that you could set your hope on, And slowly but surely, your hope will will erode and you will wither along with it. And eventually, you'll become a person who's filled with fear and anxiety and regret and anger. But if your hope is in Christ, and you become transformed into a person that can handle anything, because you know what's waiting for you on the other side of the door, See, what you believe about the future matters. It has a great impact on the way that you live. And you'll either be overwhelmed by the problems of your life or you'll endure, and it has to do with your hope. And we who put our hope in Christ have great hope. And that leads to the second point, that what is our hope in? Our hope is in the fact that we are secure There's a greater sense of security that we have over and above every person who walks the planet. And that's evident in verse 13 and 14 when it says, "...when you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of His glory." Do you want to know why your hope can be so secure? Why you can know the fact that that, that there is a million dollars and that pales in comparison to what's on offer to you on the other side of the door? It's because of this idea that you are His possession. It's so interesting because what Paul does is he, he almost uses the same word. He says, for those who are in Christ, you have an inheritance. You're going to inherit something when you get to the end of God's plan. And then he says that this is available for those who are God's possession. Do you know what possession is? Almost exactly the same term. And what that means is we have an inheritance that we are going to attain in Christ, but he has an inheritance too. Guess what his inheritance is? Us. What's an inheritance? It's your most treasured possession. It's the thing that's most valuable to you. So imagine if you know you you have a family heirloom that is priceless to you. It has monetary value, but it has sentimental value. Everything else could get destroyed, but that one thing you know you could never ever replace, and the fire alarm goes off at your house. What do you save? Not the stuff that's easy to replace. You stay, you save the one thing that's most valuable to you. Why? Because it has infinite worth. And what this is saying is that God, in God's house, He owns all the stars and all the galaxies and the entire universe. But when He looks at you, He says, this is my portion. This is my beloved. This is my possession. This is what's most valuable to me. When he looks at you, he feels wealthy. He feels like the richest man on earth. He sees you as more valuable than anything in the universe put together. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? So think about it. Next time you doubt the plan, next time you interpret his plan through the... The, the temporary and the constant shifting circumstances of your life, please don't just say, well, things will get better. It'll be all right. I, I just have to look on the bright side. Those things, it, they might help to a degree. But if you're starving for something, you need, you need something that's going to satisfy your hunger, right? Right? And those things that I just mentioned, they're like a salad leaf compared to a full steak dinner of knowing that when God looks at me, his heart wells up and he feels wealthy. That the God of the universe is willing to use all of his power to protect me and rescue me and preserve me no matter what the personal cost to himself. What do you want to dine on? What's gonna what's gonna make you most satisfied and most secure and most able to endure and have energy for the struggles of life? See if you if you don't spend time and ask the Spirit to reveal this to you again and again and again, then you're just gonna you're gonna be like everybody else that we see in every sphere of life, just scrounging over the wilted leaves that never satisfy. We'll be insecure and we'll we'll need even the smallest things to go well for us. Otherwise, we'll be a wreck. Don't forget your security in His plan. Do you know the security that comes from knowing that you're His treasured possession? Because if you do, then you don't have any reason to white-knuckle your way through life. (laughs) You don't have any reason to to manipulate your circumstances and, and try to make them work out the best possible way for you. Because you know that the one who has control over the stars and the planets uses everything to secure you, to bring you through. So how do you know if that's true, though? How do you actually grow in your understanding that, that, that all the things that I just said are actually true? Paul says that the way that you can know is because you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit who is a, a deposit. He's a down payment of what's to come. So that begs the question, okay, how do you know you have the Holy Spirit? What's the test? What's the, what's the entrance exam? To know that he's actually operating in my heart. Because maybe I don't know if he's there or not. Here's one way to tell Are you in love with Jesus? Do you find him beautiful? Do you want to know him? Do you long to see him face to face? Do you want to experience his love for you to a greater degree? Not just what He can give you with His hands, but do you want Him to show His face to you? To open His heart to you? The Bible says that the only way that that is possible is because of the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't even want those things if it weren't for the Spirit prompting you and drawing you and making them so. So we have hope and we have security. And then the last thing that we have when we understand and we believe His plan is that we have freedom. Such freedom. If you look at just the, the last end of verse 10 in the first part of verse 11, it says that God is bringing unity to all things in heaven and on earth and uh, under Christ. We talked about that already. But then the very next words He says is, "...in Him we were also chosen." It's a great complement to this verse in Romans 8.29 that says, For those who God foreknew, He also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of His Son. See, not only does, does God have a plan for creation itself, but He has a plan for you. That He chose you. What did He choose you for? It's to conform you into the image of His Son. It's to use everything that you experience in this life to make you look more like Jesus on that day. So that when the Son is revealed, when the curtain is pulled back, everyone who's in Christ will will share in the glory that's to be revealed. Your faces will shine with His love. I mean, we mentioned that last week. The only thing keeping you from becoming a a spitting image of Jesus Christ is the fact that you don't believe these things already. But on that day, you will. And God is so committed to to making you look like him. And what that does to your heart, family, is that it gives you freedom. Freedom. Because it means that every day of your life is in line with that blueprint until you reflect Jesus in everything that you say and think and do. Now, here's the objection to that. Because this is the major question that most people ask when we talk about God's plan. They say, well, what about my choices? Because it doesn't seem like, if that's true, it doesn't seem like I have a lot of freedom because where's my free will in all of this? I mean, we're Americans after all, right? We like choices. <laughs> we like options. We we want to keep our calendar open in case something comes along. We want to be able to 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 move through life and have great influence over our calendar and over our money and over who we spend our time with. We we want freedom. Where's the freedom in that? I I think The reason we struggle with this is because we often think in either-or categories, right? Either God is in control or I have free will. It has to be one or the other. It can't be both, right? But the Bible says that we are free to make choices and those choices have consequences. But guess what? In Christ, even our... Most free choices will only ever accomplish the blueprint that God has determined before the creation of the world to exercise, that we will be like him. We have freedom to choose, but those choices will only result in God's plan being all the more revealed. Now let me tell you what that does for my heart. The first thing that it does to my heart is it means that I have the freedom from not having to know what the best choices are for myself. I don't need to know whether or not the choices that I make in life are always the right ones because guess who gets the final say? Um, it, when I was choosing a college at the age of 18 or maybe 17, um, I was doing this process alongside a girlfriend that I had throughout high school. It was not Mandy, in case you're wondering. Um, it was back in Massachusetts and I was looking at different schools and um, we had applied to all the same colleges uh, because we knew what was best. And uh, one of those colleges was in Philadelphia and the other one was in Rhode Island. And my plan was for us to go to the same school for architecture and to continue this relationship and everything would be fine and dandy. And yet in spite of all my planning and all my manipulating and all my choosing, she got into the school in Rhode Island and I got into the school in Philadelphia. Do you know how thankful I am (laughs) for that choice? It was in Philadelphia that I met my bride. It was in Philadelphia that I met my Savior. And I don't know if I would have met either of them, probably not, if I had gotten my way. I, so, I, like, looking back now, I think of, of myself at 18 years old, and I think, how many of the things that I actually wanted for my life in hindsight would have been good for me? Like, what percentage of the things that I thought, yes, this is a good thing, I want this, would have actually been good if God said, okay, you can have those things? I don't even think it's 10% looking back on my life. I was a fool, and I couldn't see what God was up to. In fact, I tried to resist it over and over again. Which then begs the question, okay, now I'm, I'm about to become 38 years old. <laughs> it's two decades later. What percentage of the things that I want for my life are actually good for me today? <laughs> Man, I hope it's a higher percent than 10. <laughs> but how do I know? How do I know what's good for me? Certainly what I thought was good for me then was not good for me. And so why in the world would I have the same level of confidence in my own choices today as I had when I was 18? To have the same level of confidence, even if what I want is is, is actually good for me, I shouldn't have any more confidence than when I was that old. And here's the point. There was someone who had a better goal for my life than I did. And he was more committed to making that goal a reality than I was. Which tells me that the exact same thing is true today. That even on days when I think I know what's best for me, I can rest in the knowledge that he knows better and he loves me more than I even love myself. That's freedom. Right, Freedom to know that, that you can walk through life and if, if you get what you're after, then God can use it for good. But if you don't get what even your heart most wants, he can still use it for good. So no matter what your choices are and which ones you get or don't get, you can still rest in the fact that God is a good father who loves you and is exercising his will for your good purpose. Now, here's the th- second thing that happens to us. Not only do we have freedom in, in understanding and having a perspective on our choices, we have a freedom in understanding and have perspective on his choices for us. Family, this is where it gets hard. Because we often don't understand his choices. You want a biblical example of that? The greatest one that I know of is the life of Jacob and Joseph, right? Right? You have Jacob who is a wreck of a man because he wasn't loved by his father and his father loved Esau instead of him. And so what did he do when he had sons of his own? He plays favorites just like his dad played favorites and he chooses among his sons Joseph to be his most beloved possession to the detriment of all of his other sons. And he repeats the brokenness that he received from his dad. And what did that do to Joseph? Joseph grows up as this spoiled brat who thinks that he should be in charge of all his brothers even though he's the youngest. And he ends up being hated by them. (laughs) And they want to murder him and they end up selling him into slavery. It's a mess. What does God do to confront the mess? Seemingly nothing. Right? I mean... If you were telling this story and you wanted to paint a picture of a loving, gracious, compassionate God, you would inter- you would have him intervene at the beginning of this story and, and try to straighten everybody out. And yet, God does the opposite. He lets the whole thing play out. He lets Joseph get sold into slavery who then works to become head slave, but then is falsely accused and he's put into jail. And years go by and everything goes wrong and God seems totally absent from the entire equation. This is God's plan? And yet what happens in the end? Joseph ultimately becomes the prime minister of Egypt and he ends up saving thousands from starvation, including, guess who? His own family. He saves his fathers and his brothers. And in the process, he ends up being saved himself. Because instead of remaining the spoiled, broken man of his youth, he ends up becoming gracious and full of strength and compassion and wisdom. He's totally transformed by the end. Everything is healed and out of the mess comes beauty. And Joseph himself says at the very end of the story, In verse 20 of Genesis 50, that to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, why didn't God just show up 30 years before and tell everyone what they needed to do? It's because God knows that we don't just need to be told what to do. We need to be shown that he loves us, that he cares for us, we don't just learn about God because of what He says to us. He needs to, he needs to reveal Himself. He needs to show Himself. We can't just be told that God's in control. We have to be shown that He's in control. And guess how you get shown that He's in control? You go through something where you have no control and you have no option but to give it up and over to Him. That's the only way. And what we see in the life of Joseph is when that all that mess happened to him, though he didn't understand it for 30 years, it turned everything into something beautiful. And we're told that the same is true for us. Only we don't have to wander in the dark like Joseph did. Because we know that God is working for our good. And God didn't just tell us, He showed us. He showed us through the cross. And in, in fact, on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, became a mess for us. He endured scourging even before He got to the cross. Do you know what that is? Like, it's not just whips. They put like fragments of metal and bone onto those whips and they whip the back of Jesus, which literally tears the flesh from your body. And he endured that even before going to the cross on our behalf, which tells us he was pulled apart so that we could be put together. He was torn limb from limb so that out of the mess of our lives, we could see the beauty of God's grace. So that we would know that even if we're not free from the messiness of our circumstances, even if we don't understand the, the reasoning behind him doing this or doing that in our lives, we are free from questioning its purpose. That has been settled. He is making us new. Family, there is incredible freedom when we believe that. There's incredible freedom. And I I want us to live out of that freedom. And I think the only way to do it is, for, is to actually come to Him in prayer. And ask him to do it. So let's do that as we close. Father, you are making us beautiful. We can't see it most days. We are suspicious of you oftentimes. We live in despair and doubt and fear And many times anger. Because we're interpreting your plan through our circumstances. And yet, your word reminds us that our present trials are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us when Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Holy Spirit, would you come and bring hope to our hearts even now. Bring security and remind us how secure we are in your love and bring freedom, God. Freedom for us and may we proclaim freedom to those around us that don't yet believe it either. We pray this so that we would become to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.